Imagination According to Genesis 6-5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was very great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The same judgment is restated in Genesis 8-21. It is echoed in Deuteronomy 29-19 and 31-21 and Jeremiah 23-17. David warned Solomon that the Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. 1 Chronicles 28-9 Not only in the flood, but through Christ, God brings his judgment to bear on man's imagination. In the Magnificat, Mary joyfully declared, He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Luke 1.51 St. Paul said of the reprobates that they became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Romans 1.21 The Christian's warfare requires casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5 According to James Hastings, in Scripture, imagination has always the sense of evil purpose, contrivance. It means firmness in a bad cause. The New Testament usage involves three Greek words. Legismos, Romans 2.15, 2 Corinthians 10.5, has reference to thoughts and suggests the contemplation of actions as a result of the verdict of conscience. Dialogismos, Romans 1.21, means reasonings, thoughts, and has the idea of evil purposes. Dianoia, Luke one fifty one, is strictly a thinking over, denotes the faculty of thinking, then of knowing, hence the understanding, and in general the mind, and so the faculty of moral reflection. It refers to thoughts and ideas. Imagination thus refers to man's thoughts and ideas, which, in defiance to God, purpose and contrive to establish an order apart from God. Man dreams and plans a world in which God is left out and man is everything, a world in which man is his own God. This imagination may be convinced of its own nobility as the framers of Babel were, but it is no less evil because it seeks to bring a world without God into being. Hugh Hafner of Playboy magazine reeks of his humanistic nobility as he imagines his brave new world. Young people today are different than they used to be but it is in ways that are related to what we are all about, he goes on. Their moral values and lifestyles give them the option of staying single longer and using those years for fun and experience, which is what we've been advocating for years. They are the same in that they still want the good life and anyone who says differently is wrong. What do they think, that they want the bad life? Listen, he says excitedly, with the air of one who is discovering the truth of his own words. The solution to the world's problems is to get material things to more people to give everybody the good life. And the thing that's stopping this is nationalistic superstitions and hang-ups. What we really need is a workable world government. It's not far-fetched. I devoted a whole segment of the philosophy, the 25-part track that he wrote for Playboy in the mid-1960s, holding mainly that people ought to be able to enjoy the fruits of their labor without guilt, to that. And it got a terrific response. I think I got more comment on that than anything else I wrote. In fact, I think another article on the subject is overdue. It will be in the hopper tomorrow. And with that, a Playboy vice president who is listening in puts down his fork and applauds. From Babel through Playboy and beyond, the imagination of fallen man reeks of self-righteousness and sees itself as the epitome of nobility. Man in his imagination plans evil and sees himself as a world liberator in the process and as the hope of humanity. Imagination is thus the dream of reason, 
of unregenerate autonomous reason as it contrives and plans to bring into being its godless world. Imagination takes the normal, God-given experiences of life and attempts to read a new meaning into them. Thus, Lowen sees the sexual orgasm as a religious experience. Any response that actively involves the total organism is perceived as a moving experience. In this feeling of being moved, we sense ourselves as part of the universal. Precisely because religious communion can move us, in the emotional sense, we experience it as a valid expression of our link with the universe or God. Sexual orgasm is a deeper, more biological experience of man's unity with nature and the universe. The following statement is one woman's experience of this phenomenon. Her description is concise and informative. Once I had an experience during intercourse which was so different from anything else that I don't think I will ever be satisfied until I experience it again. During this experience, without any effort or trying on my part, my body was moved from within, so to speak, and everything was right. There was a rhythmic movement and a feeling of ecstasy at being part of something much greater than myself, and finally of reward, of real satisfaction and peace. Glow and illumination are other aspects of this phenomenon that bear some resemblance to cosmic events. The full orgasm is generally accompanied by a feeling of glow that is a higher, perhaps hotter, state of the phenomenon of sexual heat. If the intensity and extent of the orgasm reach a high peak, the glow may extend over the whole body and be experienced as a feeling of illumination. The external manifestation of this feeling of illumination is seen as a radiance that is the natural expression of a person in love. Glow and illumination are properties of heavenly bodies. The person in love feels that he is in heaven. In love, the individual transcends the experience of finite existence. In orgasm, he transcends the feeling of his physical existence. The orgastic experience has other meanings. It is experienced as a rebirth and as a renewal. I have said that in orgasm, one reverts to the kinds of movement that lay at the origin of one's being. It is a sensation that is experienced as overwhelming, as if one is being moved by life's deepest force. This is the language of mysticism. And it is this mystical expectation of sex, the dream and hope for a kind of cosmic coition, which leads to so much sexual frustration. To expect too much from sex means that a person is condemned to receive too little, because he has demanded from the sexual act an experience which it cannot give. Imagination thus leads to over-expectation in one realm after another, because it denies God. Having denied God, it expects the world to deliver what only God can deliver. Politics is overvalued and is made into a vehicle of salvation, with the result that political order is destroyed because too much is expected from it. The economic order, too, is required to deliver paradise, and it, too, is turned into chaos by means of over-expectations. R. Payne Smith, in commenting on Genesis 6-5, observed, Imagination, more exactly, form, shape. Thus, every idea or embodied thought which presented itself in the mind through the working of the heart, that is, the whole inner nature of man, was only evil continually. In Hebrew, all the day, from morning to night, without reproof of conscience or fear of the divine justice. A more forcible picture of complete depravity could scarcely be drawn, and this corruption of man's inner nature is ascribed to the overthrow of moral and social restraints. Man's imagination was only evil continually. His whole inner nature was given to replanning all reality in terms of his own centrality. Man, having made himself his own god, now began to dream and plan to remake all things after his own image. 
The men before the flood and the builders of Babel are described as men of this evil imagination. Genesis 11.6 It is the duty of the Christian to cast down imaginations, thoughts, i.e. the opinions or convictions of those who set themselves and the deductions of their own reason against the truth of God. Moreover, it is the indispensable condition of salvation that our understanding should be brought into captivity, led submissive as though bound into the obedience of Christ. This same point was made earlier by Calvin, who commented on 2 Corinthians 10.5, I am of the opinion that, having previously spoken more particularly of the conflict of spiritual armor, along with the hindrances that rise up in opposition to the gospel of Christ, he now, on the other hand, speaks of the ordinary preparation, by which men must be brought into subjection to him. For so long as we rest in our own judgment and are wise in our own estimation, we are far from having made any approach to the doctrine of Christ. Hence we must set out with this, that he who is wise must become a fool, 1 Corinthians 3.18. That is, we must give up our own understanding and renounce the wisdom of the flesh, and thus we must present our minds to Christ empty that he may fill them. Now the form of expression must be observed when he says that he brings every thought into captivity, for it is as though he had said that the liberty of the human mind must be restrained and bridled, that it may not be wise apart from the doctrine of Christ, and farther, that its audacity cannot be restrained by any other means than by its being carried away, as it were, captive. Now it is by the guidance of the Spirit that it is brought to allow itself to be placed under control and remain in a voluntary captivity. The contrast thus between fallen and redeemed man is a very marked one. The psychology of fallen man reveals a will to disobey. His hatred of anything that suggests the law of God is so intense that he consistently violates laws in disregard for his own self-interest. The will to disobey is religiously motivated. It is, in principle, a denial of God's law and an affirmation of man's autonomy. Because of this hatred of law in fallen man, the possibility of both establishing and maintaining a social order on the foundation of man's autonomy from God must be denied, since for fallen man, freedom means freedom from law. The possibility of a social order on this principle is out of the question. For fallen man, only fear, and that within limits, can keep him within the boundaries of the law. The imagination of fallen man is dedicated to working and planning for a lawless world. The redeemed man, however, manifests progressively a will to obey God and a delight in his law. It was as the representative man, the last Adam, and the fountainhead of the new humanity that Jesus declared, Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Hebrews 10.7 The redeemed mind finds his freedom under law, not in opposition to law. Similarly, his imagination is not apostate and anti-law. Rather, it is progressively directed towards the fulfillment of covenantal responsibilities under God. It is, under God, a creative imagination, not a rebellious and destructive one. What apostate imagination means was clearly apparent in William Blake, for whom imagination was man's creative word, whereby man remained reality as his own God. According to Blake, does a firm persuasion that a thing is so make it so? All poets believe that it does, and in ages of imagination this firm persuasion removed mountains, but many are not capable of a firm persuasion of anything. Because of false religious opinions, Blake held, All nations believe the Jews' code and worship the Jews' God, 
and what greater subjection can be. For Blake, biblical religion had paralyzed the imagination of man, and men could not longer see that everything that lives is holy. If all things are holy, then man's imagination is clearly holy, and the plans of autonomous apostate man are thus holy plans. This apostate imagination sees itself not as a sinner, but as a victim. Thus, Blake has Lava declare, I suffer affliction because I love. This reflects the sin of Cain, who felt himself wronged and complained that his punishment was too great to bear. Genesis 4.13 Self-pity marks the sinner. He is in his own eyes always the victim, with God the ultimate aggressor. The fearful destiny of the apostate man is that he is in reality irrelevant to God, and ultimately in hell shall be irrelevant to other men and the universe. To step aside from God's sovereign purpose is to move into irrelevancy. Out of dominion and into irrelevancy, this is the destiny of apostate man. In his imagination, the fallen man sees himself as God and creator. In his every dream, he plays God over reality. Magic and witchcraft are products of this fallen imagination. The magic words of witches are, As my will, so mote it be. This magic formula, usually shortened to, So mote it be, mote meaning may, might, is from the Anglo-Saxon motan, mot, be obliged, is a part of Masonic ritual, which is very closely linked to witchcraft. According to a witch's handbook, As a witch, you do not necessarily have to worship any complete and permanent hierarchy of spiritual beings if you don't want to. There simply exists powers to be tapped, to do good or to do evil, both of which are remarkably relative concepts. This statement is especially revealing. First, this witch or human god is independent of or above all natural and supernatural beings and is free to use them. Reality exists to be used. Second, good and evil are termed remarkably relative concepts. The imagination revealed by this statement thus is far-reaching in its presumption. All things exist for the individual, are there to be exploited by him, and there is no meaning except a relative and personal one. In hell, such people are left forever to the impotence of their imagination, and nothing else.